Micah chapter 3, and we'll be reading uh, all of that chapter. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouth. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down and the prophets in the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. We end there at verse 12, and we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word. When Scott asked me, um, it was the, just before, uh, sort of last week, that if I could preach this week, um, he said something along the lines of, so you'll be in Micah chapter 3 that week, uh, and I've really been trying to focus on the encouraging side of Micah, because Micah can be quite hard-hitting, quite, quite heavy-going. Now, had I read chapter 3 beforehand, and had I been familiar with what I was about to be faced with uh, over these last few days, this last week, uh, I could well have choked on whatever happened to be in my mouth at that moment, um, or I probably would have at the very least questioned if it was purely a coincidence uh, that Scott suddenly found himself required in Trinity Board Mills this particular week. Uh, because as we read together, if you're looking for feel-good, Micah chapter 3 uh, is probably not the place that you're going to go. Micah chapter 4, Micah chapter 5, boom, salvation is coming. Um, but as I opened up some commentaries, one began uh, this week with the words, Micah chapter 3 is condemnatory. And I thought, fantastic, this will, uh, this will be a belter. Um, Another one compared Micah in chapter 3 to the man on the, on the street with a loud healer in the sandwich board saying, uh, repent, the end is now. Uh, but um, let's take a look 
Um, and really, in, in the face of what at times, as I was talking to the kids about, is a, is a brutal prophecy, um, I want to try and get to some of the questions that I think this passage starts to ask uh, of us. I'm not going to spend uh, really a whole lot of time going uh, verse by verse through the chapter. We've, uh, we've read it together uh, at the start of the service, and, and it's one where I think mostly the, the meaning is really uh, fairly, uh, fairly clear. If you look there, it's, it's broken up into three sections. The first four verses deal with Israel's leaders, uh, those who, as we see in verse 1, they should know right from wrong, uh, but who are taking advantage of and oppressing God's people. As we said to the boys and girls, Maggie uses some really grisly language to describe how they're abusing their position, skinning the people alive, tearing the flesh from their bones, uh, chopping them up, even uh, cooking them and devouring them. And it's a, it's a gruesomely graphic picture uh, of what is, is just unfettered greed uh, without any compassion, uh, of deliberate, uncaring uh, destruction just to feed their own appetites. And the consequences we see in verse 4 is that when trouble comes, they will cry out, uh, but God will not answer. We then have uh, the next section, uh, verses 5 to 8. Micah turns his attention to the prophets. Uh, and they too have been corrupted, prophesying good things for those who were happy to pay them uh, and bad for those who would either not, either would not, or, or more likely could not afford to uh, put money in their pocket to feed them. Micah declares that no longer uh, will they hear God's voice. And, and just like the political leaders uh, he rebuked in those first four verses, uh, in verse 7, again, we, we see that echoed, there will be no answer from God. And then there's the final section, verses 8 to 12. Uh, Micah declares he is filled with the Holy Spirit and pronounces judgment. Uh, verse 11, rulers, priests, prophets, uh, all have been corrupted there. All have, have bowed the knee to material, ill-gotten wealth. Uh, and so uh, back then in Jerusalem, if your problem was political, if it was religious or personal, if the money reached the right hands, uh, the answer that you desired could be bought. But yet, as I said to, the, uh, to the, the boys and girls there, all of these men in these various positions uh, still uh, claimed dependence on God. And so where would all this lead? Uh, this this stomach-turning swamp uh, of oppression and manipulation that Micah sees and speaks out against of, of greed and injustice, uh, of hypocrisy and false religion, uh, Micah leads no doubt. Jerusalem would be destroyed. The mighty city of David, the site where the Lord God Almighty had chosen to put his temple so to dwell amongst his people would be completely flattened, reduced to rubble. It would lie like a plowed field with weeds growing through the remains of what were once its magnificent walls. Some 30 years later, uh, in the time of Jeremiah, Micah's words are remembered, and we read in, in Jeremiah 26, uh, Verse 17, Jeremiah has prophesied, but they don't like what he says, and they, uh, they want to get rid of him. But we read, verse 17, Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of people, Micah, reading about Micah of Morsheth, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. And then they, they quote this verse 12, Zion will be, applied, will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple mound... Hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. 
They say, did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah put him to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them? We're about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. So it seems Micah's words at this point were at least briefly heeded by King Hezekiah. There was some um, response of turning back to God. But although Micah would not live to see it, this, this prophecy about Jerusalem was ultimately proved true. Uh, when just over 100 years later, the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem, destroyed both the temple and the city walls, and carried the Israelites, that's, that's Daniel and co, um, off into exile. So uh, that's kind of the outline. Again, I, pr- I probably haven't added a great deal to your understanding. If you just read it yourself in Micah chapter 3. Um, and so your question might well be, well, what do we here in Balanahinch getting close to close to 3,000 years later, what do we have to do with, with this section of this prophet healing from Judah? Do we fall under this, this same recent rebuke? But when I look out um, at your mostly happy, smiling faces, um, do I see a group of people uh, exploiting the poor, tearing the flesh from their bodies and, and smashing their bones? Now, when I say that, don't get me wrong, because uh, I'm aware, as as I say this next part, that we as Westerners, uh, in some of our choices and and the products that we buy and the companies we support, uh, we we certainly can find ourselves guilty of that kind of uh, exploitation. I I don't want to brush that off or take that lightly. But unless uh, unless Desi and Valerie have 75 Eastern Europeans locked up making T-shirts in some shed out the back, uh, that I don't know about, All right. uh, um, then I, I don't see that, that vicious exploitation of the poor and the people. Uh, really, so much as part of our daily, weekly sort of life experience uh, in Balmahinch. You know, has, has Eden Grove lost its way so much that elders are, are taking bribes to raise issues in session meetings? Not that I know of. Um, or at least if that is happening, no one's... Why, why is no one coming to me? Um, so so that's, that's not where I'm going with Micah 3. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that God will cease to answer you, that you're hypocrites, or that Eden Grove will soon lie like a plowed field. But what I think this passage challenges us to think about is, is how did Israel get to this point? Here in Micah chapter 3, they're, they're at the bottom or they're close to the bottom of what is a long and slippery slope. But as we see there in verse 11, as I said, these are still people who identified as servants of the Lord. They said, we are dependent on him. And that being the case, I want to ask, how did they go from, from this position of, of being God's people? Not that the Israelites were ever super faithful, but better than this. How did they go from there to being the people here in Micah chapter 3, where God has determined uh, to withdraw his hand of protection really to, to spit them from his mouth. Although, of course, he would call them back. But, but how, did they, how did they arrive at this point where, where this kind of prophecy is required? Their confidence came from God's promises uh, about Jerusalem. Uh, in 1 Kings, if we were to turn there, in 1 Kings chapter 6, uh, the Lord is speaking to Solomon as Solomon sets about the task 
uh, of building the temple. And God says in verse 12, Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. There's a promise there. God would always watch over that temple, always watch over that city. And remember, too, that at this stage in Israel's history, the northern ten tribes uh, had already fallen to the Assyrians. Only Judah in the south survived. And so they had evidence to suggest, to, to back up that theory, that regardless of whatever else happened in the world, Jerusalem would remain. They latched on to that promise that we read there, the, the blessing um, of verse 13, I will not forsake my people Israel, but they forgot about verse 12 where God put conditions on that. They needed to walk in his commandments. So these were men and women who, as we said, they claimed dependence on God. They viewed themselves as God's people living in God's city. They loved that. They enjoyed that position. But their hearts, as we read, were not concerned with God's. They wanted those blessings. They wanted God's stuff. But they did not want him did not know him. Their hearts were not concerned about the things that God's heart is concerned about. They were not grieved by the things that grieved God. It's the same story, but a different expression when when Jesus speaks of the prodigal son. The boy goes to his father and says, give give me my inheritance now. Which even more so in, in ancient Israel's culture than perhaps in present day, but he was effectively telling the, his father, you know, I wish you were dead already. I don't want to know you or spend time with you or have relationship. Just give me the stuff. I want that. Now, can we do that? You bet we can. Eden Grove's a good place to be on a Sunday. And when, I, when I look out, what do I see? I, I see my family. We come, uh, we have coffee. We get a, a fix of religion, I suppose, and quite possibly uh, we pay into the place. We're committed. We're here not just on Sunday, perhaps uh, two, three times a week. It's a good place for our, for our kids to come. This, this is, like I said, this is family. This is our community. But if, if that's what Eden Grove is, if that's all that Eden Grove is, then that's just stuff. It's religion. But it's not God. Church is not a social club. This is where we, brothers and sisters in Christ, gather together to live out our faith together. Our church is not something that we do. It's not alongside or it's not on an equal footing with with your job or your football club or your hobbies. It's not one more thing on the list of things that you do. Or at least it's not supposed to be. You, if you are a Christian, are the body of Christ. Your church is literally who you are. It's not something you do. If we, if we get that difference. Micah chapter 3, as he condemns people who act and claim religion, who you'd imagine were at the temple every week, but whose hearts do not belong to the Lord, I think asks us the same question. Where 
Where is my heart? Where is your heart? Where, where, where are, where is, where is our hearts? Are we really concerned primarily with what concerns God? Where does God stuff, as we call it at the basement, where does, where does that God stuff fit into your life? Prayer, Bible study, both personal uh, and with your brothers and sisters here at Eden Grove, is it, is it squeezed in amongst other things? Or even sometimes squeezed out by other things? Friends, God wants more of you than that. Or I could say it like this. Are you a teacher? Are you a fireman, a farmer, a, a business owner, whatever you are? Are you one of those who, who happens to be a Christian? Or are you a Christian who just happens to be one of those other things? Is your God the primary concern of your heart? Because I would say for every single one of us, there's something, there's something that will tempt us, something that will draw us, that will, will try to win our hearts. The thing that, that when there's a choice, when it's one or the other, we're tempted at least to lay down the things of God and instead put our heart and our energy and our focus towards what it is our hearts crave. I don't know what that is for you, your, your career, your family, your farm, your hobby. I don't know. But I ask this morning, how, how are you doing there? And who's winning? Who holds that territory of your heart? Is it God? Or is it those other things, things of this world that we can love so much? At this point... You may be thinking, well, Dave, you really dropped the ball on the whole encouraging side of Micah there. Um, so let me finish by telling you where, uh, where I find encouragement in Micah chapter 3. I want to show a, a quick video. Dougie, if you can hit play, I'll, I, I'll talk over the top of it. It's, it's a visual rather than what you need. Um, but what you see there is actually, you'll not be able, you probably can't read the text, I'm guessing. Maybe you can, but that is... That is the biggest picture that has ever been taken uh, with the most data. So that, that sky, um, the video is three minutes long, but it's, those at the basement will have, will have seen this before. But as you'll see, it, it's, it's zooming in and it's, it'll give us a quick tour of a spot of the universe. And the reason I'm showing this is because this, and again, apologies to those listening on CD right now. Uh, you won't get the visual. But this universe that God made is, is mind-boggling. You, you won't see the effect until we get just to the last, the last few shots of this. But every one of those little pinpricks of light that you see there is a star. And how many are on that screen? And
might say something because people are currently checking their CD players to see why why the recording has ended. But in a second, again, having spent a couple of minutes of, of zooming around, and again, how many millions of stars have been in just the three minutes of video. see that that two minutes of countless millions of stars is a tiny section of that picture, which is a tiny section of that picture, which is a tiny section of that picture. That, that is mind-boggling. We cannot understand that the God who did that, the God who is big enough to have flung those stars into space and who holds them in place, that God wants to know you. That God knows how many hairs are on your head this morning. It's a bigger job for some of us than others. But he knows. He is so present in our lives that he was there forming you in your mother's womb. That God wants to know you. That God wants to walk with you as your closest friend. That God stepped into this world as a man and allowed us to whip him and tear the flesh from his bones, to nail him to a cross. And he did that so that you could know him, so that you could be saved. He did it to buy an eternity for you that you don't deserve. That's what that God did. And if you're not walking with him heart to heart, as it were, if you're uh, distracted and, uh, and focused on all those other things that can crowd out our life, well, he made you to enjoy that relationship. He misses you. His concern is not whether you're here every Sunday putting on the show and looking the part. He wants you. And you see, if you felt like what I said uh, before about you know, when we put things aside, when we put the things of God aside, if that felt like some kind of, uh, of guilt trip, if there's something in you that, that resents the suggestion that, that God wants more of you, let, let me frame it in another way or give you another picture. Imagine a scene where a wife, or vice versa, but a wife comes to her husband and says, I love you. I love spending time with you. I love going on walks and laughing and playing games. I love traveling with you. I love going to movies. I love going out to eat with you. Being with you just makes me happy. If the husband or wife responds to that with some kind of anger or frustration, I give you enough. Why do you want more from me? Well then, does that man or woman, do they really love 
his wife? I'm, I'm not sure he does. Or is he or she operating in some kind of imagined contract that says, this is what you get from me? Do not ask me for more. Gentlemen, I know enough to know that wives don't do contracts like that. And neither does God's. You see, if that husband loves his wife with all his heart, then isn't that music to his ears? When you love someone and you hear that they love to you, doesn't that fill you with joy? And wouldn't that husband take her in his arms and say, I love you too. And let's do all of that stuff together as much as we possibly can. And friend, that's, that's the question I, I, I leave you with this morning. Where's your heart? Is it with Jesus? Is it all the way with him? Because that's, that's what that God, that's what he calls you to. That's what he desires for you. That's why he died for you. Because if, if it's not, then be under no illusions. You need to fix that. You need to go to war. You need to, to fight that battle. You might not be at the bottom of that slippery slope. Uh, you not, might not be guilty of, of the disgusting corruption of the leaders and the priests and the prophets of Micah's Israel. But the sin at the root is the very same. The truth is that one day we will all meet Jesus. We will stand before him. But the question is, how do you want that meeting to go? Because we have a choice. The question is, will you embrace Jesus as a Christian who'd been living like heaven is their only true home? Who'd been living like they've just been passing through this world? Living like they can't wait to be with their Savior in glory? And finally, they have arrived where their heart has longed to be for so much of their life. Will that be our story? Or will we get there as someone who's almost reluctantly been pulled away from this little kingdom that we built for ourselves? A kingdom that will be dwarfed and will be ridiculous in the face of heavenly glory. Friends, how will it be for you on that day? I know which I would choose. I pray by God's grace alone. May it be so for all of us.